In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, on June 26th of 2015, in a vote of five to four, the Supreme Court of the United States of America handed down a ruling declaring that same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. And yesterday marked the sixth anniversary of that ruling where the world celebrates this mandate. At the time, President Obama called it a victory for America. And the evening of that ruling, the White House was lit up with all the colors of uh, the gay pride flag. And there were parades and rallies and companies changing their logos and a flood of images posted on social media saying that love wins. And although June was designated as Gay Pride Month in 1970, the world celebrated this ruling because it didn't come from the people or businesses or churches, but it came from the highest court the government that rules over us. So from that moment, it seems like everything changed. And in some ways it has, you can argue that. But in a more profound way, nothing actually changed. And this is because no no matter what laws the government passes, they cannot change morality or truth or virtue or goodness. These things remain. We humans don't determine the law, the moral law, the eternal law. We don't define virtue and vice or right and wrong. God does. He defines these things and he already has. And this is because he is the judge who has an authority far above that of the Supreme Court of the United States. He is above all human courts and laws because he is the one who established them. They are under him. He created this world and everything in it, and it is all subject to him beneath his feet. And so he determines what is good and right and true. In fact, he has written what is good and right and true into our heart. That is called our conscience. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 says, They show, that is the world, they show that the, the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So no matter how much people will fight against it, their conscience is still there speaking and testifying against them. And this is why I would argue that the world is so loud about the the sins of homosexuality and all sexual sins of perversion. Why they promote it at every opportunity. They force its contrived images upon us and upon our little ones, our children. Or they get so fierce and angry when anyone would oppose or speak a word against it. I'm saying that this is because their conscience is bearing witness against them. And they are trying to drown that voice out. They're trying to uh, make the other voices of approval louder than the voice that disapproves it within them. And so all of this media and publicity this month is an attempt to drown out that guilt that they bear. And and this conscience, the the law of morality in our hearts about marriage, wasn't invented or written or decided by man, but by God. And the one who created marriage is also the one who defines it. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10. He says, God made them male and female. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This was said by Jesus Christ himself, who is love, who poured out his blood from his body, from his veins for sinners. He says that marriage is between a man and a woman. So if that is the case, if the God of heaven and earth says that this is what marriage is, then that means that same-sex marriage doesn't even exist. It's not real. You may see two people who think they are married, but they really aren't. And I don't know what you'd call it, but it's not marriage. God invented marriage. He defines what it is. And not only that, he is the one who joins husband and wife together. Uh, If you have a spouse, that was not your decision alone. That was God's decision through you. That was his doing. And that's what he says. He says, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. It is his doing, his decision, is his work. Now, God is the one who joins people together in marriage. So if you have a spouse, that is the Lord's decision, and he is the one who joins male and female together, but he does not join people together of the same sex. That is not his doing. That is not his work. And therefore, since it's, he has no part in it, it's neither blessed or true or beautiful or good or anything to be proud of. And knowing that, it's inaccurate for Christians to then say, well, because of what the court has said, now we have same-sex marriage in America. And the truth is, no, we don't. We don't. we, We never have. We never will. It simply does not exist. The thing itself does not exist. Marriage belongs to God. And he has said, this is what it is. Now, uh, over the years, I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, look, there's a problem now. What the Supreme Court did is against God. And he's going to come down with some temporal divine judgment upon our nation in some form or another. He's going to come down and wreak havoc. He's going to pour out his wrath upon us. And we're just waiting for that day. We're waiting for that moment. Let me say this. No, he's not. He's not going to. Uh, He will not bring divine judgment as a result of the Supreme Court ruling. The Supreme Court ruling is the judgment. It is the consequence. Romans 1 says it very clearly. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So we oftentimes think of God's wrath as fire and brimstone. And yes, that's true. At times it is. But that is not the only thing that God's wrath 
is. Romans 1 tells us what God's wrath is also, and it is this, these haunting words. He gave them up. The Greek word there is parodidomi, <clears throat> which means to hand over. Uh, to, to, it's the same word used when Christ was betrayed and given into the hands of the soldiers by Judas. Uh, here it is saying that they are handed over, the sense of delivering somebody up to be arrested or put in prison. So God gave them up. He handed them over to be bound and to be enslaved by the sin. So look, we, we often t- we have to be honest with ourselves and read this and see that this applies to us also. We oftentimes think, look, if I do drugs or if I'm promiscuous and fornicate or gamble or any of these things, God is going to punish me. But the truth is that those things are the punishment. The, 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 the slavery to those things, to those passions is the problem. That is the thing that you're bound to. That is the wrath. Now, the truth is that God has handed you over to those things. Uh, he hands people over to those vain and empty things that never lead to satisfaction. Never. They never lead to joy. It never ends well, ever. Any of these things. He gives you up and he lets those things have you. You don't want the Lord for so long that finally the Lord says, okay, go. You can't be mad at him for it. Right? Uh, and so that means that homosexuality and its wide acceptance and celebration of it is its own punishment, according to Romans 1. And the only reason this ruling hasn't happened before and sooner is because God has been, in his grace and mercy, restraining it and keeping us from this. But now he has given us over to it as a nation. So I'm going to suggest this to you. Keep all those words in mind. I'm going to suggest this to you. It is therefore not our place to despise and attack those who live like this. It is our place to have pity on them. No matter how proud or arrogant and boisterous it may sound, no matter how much they may deny their sin and guilt, It is our place to look at them with compassion because they are people that God Almighty has given up and given over to their sin. And so for this reason, you ought to look at them with pity as the Lord has looked at our entire world with pity. Now, part of having pity and mercy and love is speaking out. It means warning people of dangers. And so now, finally, we're on to the gospel lesson, uh, to the meat of the sermon. All of that was the introduction right there. So, all right. In the gospel lesson, Jesus says these words. He says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And he also says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. So all too often, these words are misunderstood to mean that we should just leave people alone, never comment, never speak up, never point out sins, never warn, never correct. And so we've taken these words uh, in Luke chapter 6 to be God's version of the chief American virtue, which is tolerance. Just 
tolerate. We, don't be intolerant, right? And you've heard these things. Uh, don't be intolerant. Even Christians will say this. They'll say, look, I don't care what two people choose to do in the privacy of their own home. That's up to them. Just leave me alone. Let me do what I want and you do what you want. Now, that, of, of course, that is certainly very tolerant of you. Yes. It is very American of you. But it is not a Christian thing to say. Tolerance is not a virtue. God has called you not to tolerate your neighbor, but to love your neighbor. And that is much greater and much more profound. Loving someone means caring about how they live and speaking the truth, which may be difficult and uncomfortable. Most people have ripped this gospel lesson out, uh, Luke chapter 6, entirely out of context. The, the context is that the people Jesus is talking to is this. It's a group of people, including the Pharisees, who were concerned about how people lived their lives. He was speaking to a crowd whose culture it was to go around and constantly tell people and call people out for their sins. That's, what, it, that's what, what that culture was. That's what they did. Now, with these words, Jesus isn't saying, look, stop doing that altogether. Just let people do what they want. What he's saying is that your chief concern when you do this in this society, in this way, should not be the sins of others, but the sins of yourself, your own sins, the sins of your heart. Jesus never said you cannot call out sin. He, didn't, he never said don't remove specks of dust in people's eye. He didn't say that. What he said was this. First, take out the log that is in your own eye, and then you will clearly see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. He, he just orders it differently. He's reordering the way that you and your neighbor uh, relate to one another. Our sinful nature wants to consider our neighbor's sin before ourselves. So when the topic of sin comes up, we start looking around. And what Jesus is saying, no, when you hear about sin, the first thing you do is you turn inward and you look at your own heart. That's where you start. Uh, and Jesus is reversing that. Before you call others to repentance, you yourself must repent. That's it. And your attitude should be that you consider your own sins a bigger problem than those of your neighbor. So, <clears throat> practically speaking, that means that you ought to repent of your own promiscuity or crude jokes or pornography or rejection of marriage and that you should strive to live a sexually pure and decent life before you call others to repent of their sins. This means that you ought to repent of despising children and considering them burdens before you call others to repent for the sin of abortion. And this means you ought to repent of your own refusal to hear the word of God and listen to it and cherish it and love it in church before you call others to do the same. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be perfect and without sin to speak to others. It simply means that you ought to know that your own sin first comes first and that you repent of it and receive the absolution from Christ. And once you do that, then you speak to your neighbor with confidence and love. And the reason we do this is because we are saying that we have the same disease. 
The same disease, though the symptoms are different and vary from person to person, the disease is the same and the disease that is in your heart is also in mine. And the symptoms may change, may become better or worse, but the root of the problem is sin. And so therefore, because we are in the same boat, we should never approach our neighbor in conceit or arrogance or boastfulness, ever. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this. It says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You are not a Christian. Uh, you do not repent and you are not good enough for God or you don't deserve a place in his kingdom. You are a Christian not because of your own doing, your own reason or your own strength, but you are a Christian because the Holy Spirit called you by the gospel. He had mercy upon you. So you are not any better than anyone else. You don't deserve to be a Christian more than anyone else. We are all undeserving to hear the word and receive his forgiveness. Ephesians 2, 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You are indeed, yes, a sinner, but a sinner who has been forgiven by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit has given you faith to believe this even to your final day. That is what it means to remove the plank in your own eye. Repent and trust in Christ yourself before getting your neighbor to do the same. Now, God has not only called you to repent of your own sin, he has also called you to call your neighbor to repent of his sin and it is unloving then, therefore, to leave your neighbor in danger, to never warn him, to never speak up and tell him the truth. It is, uh, uh, it is unloving to leave him in sin. So to love your neighbor rightly, you need to speak out. And however, <clears throat> this means you have to do so lovingly, to call your neighbor to repent of his sins too, even when he calls you hateful and bigoted and mean for saying so. Our call is to love and to speak. And when we do this, sometimes we will pay the price for it dearly. We will be persecuted and slandered and reviled and called all kinds of evil things on account of speaking the truth. And when that happens, you should not despair or be discouraged or even be surprised for a minute because uh, you ought to remember that even when others tear you down for speaking the truth in love, remember that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the joy that is and to the glory that is going to be revealed in you. So don't be afraid. Receive the forgiveness of Christ and repent joyfully. Receive his word his holy gospel, his body and his blood for your forgiveness. Receive that with joy and boldness and confidence. And then when you go and call out your neighbor, show them that you need the same Jesus that they do, that you need the same forgiveness as much as they do, that you need the same God who joyfully receives all who repent and call upon his name in faith. You need him as much as the rest of this world does. Show them that the same God who calls sinners to repent is the same God who spilled his blood for sinners to redeem them. Amen.
Hear the words of the hymn we just sang. Grant me the strength to do with ready heart and willing whatever you command my calling here fulfilling. That I do what I should while trusting you to bless the outcome for my good. For you must give success. Keep me from saying words that later need recalling. Guard me lest idle speech may from my lips be falling. But when within my place I must and ought to speak, then to my words give grace, lest I offend the weak. Lord, let me win my foes with kindly words and actions, and let me find good friends for counsel and correction. Help me as you have taught to love both great and small, and by your Spirit's might to live in peace with all. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.